You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. Want to give you a quick update on the book, Strong Towns, A Bottom-Up Revolution to Rebuild American Prosperity. Uh, one of the things that they've been pushing me on around here is to put together some pre-order incentives, some things to get you out there uh, buying this book early. And one of the things they wanted me to do was put together a lost chapter. Uh, the idea was, you know, this is something that got cut uh, that you wanted to do that you didn't. And I'm like, well, I actually put everything I wanted to into this book. Uh, I basically cut out three other books I want to write. Uh, that was kind of the key catalyst to getting this thing done. Um, and then I thought about it and I thought, you know, there is one gap uh, that I wanted to write about that I didn't really include in the book because it was already, you know, 70,000 plus words. And so I have prepared uh, a lost chapter for you. And the only way you're going to get this is to be one of the pre-orders. If you uh, pre-order the book, Strong Towns, A Bottom-Up Revolution to Rebuild American Prosperity, and then email us, uh, you can email Missy, uh, missy at strongtowns.org. Uh, we'll get you on the list. And when the book comes out, we will get you that lost chapter. Thanks, everybody. Back in uh, 2010, I believe it was, I was invited to participate in a... CNU Next Gen gathering in New Orleans. And it was fascinating because it was one of the kind of change moments of my life. I met some people who over the years have not only inspired me, uh, but have just shed a light on things that I, I never would have thought of uh, without them and without uh, their guidance. One, one of those, and we had a great tour we did uh, after dinner where we walked around New Orleans and I got uh, a handful of people explaining to me uh, New Orleans architecture and layout and design is a guy named uh, Scott Ford. Scott is uh, formerly with the city of South Bend. He's now the associate vice president for economic development with the University of Notre Dame. And he agreed to come on the podcast today and chat about South Bend and its revitalization and the university and, and how the two are working together. Scott, welcome to the Strong Downs podcast. Oh, it's an honor to be with you, Chuck. And, and uh, truly, it's an honor. I can't underscore the uh, influence of Strong Towns, um, particularly uh, across cities in the upper Midwest, to uh, connect, uh, I think, a whole new audience to new urbanism and just appreciate the forum for ideas and policy that. Uh, um, you've really brought to everyone. So no, thank you. It's an honor. Well, thank you. That's very kind. I, I, I want to, I have to say as when you were part of bringing me to South Bend the first time, uh, I got an invitation from you and, and we were able to make that happen. I, I have to admit that for me, South Bend was the university of Notre Dame. Uh, and I never like contemplated that there would be a city att attached to it, let alone one that had so many struggles. Um, can you talk a little bit about maybe a decade ago, uh, South Bend, where it was at, some of the things that, uh, that were going on, and, and particularly some of the struggles that were just manifestly uh, evident there in the city? No, absolutely. And, and you know, one of the fascinating things about South Bend is its almost normative condition uh, for um, representing you know, all the, the various um, positives and negatives that have addressed, uh, you know, the urban America in the last, uh, the last century, really. You know, at one point, at it, it, the turn of uh, the last century, it, it was one of the most innovative places in the country with Oliver Plow, Singer Sewing Machine, a South Bend Watch, um, and uh, certainly Studebaker and others, and was generating all sorts of new products and innovation. And, um, uh, and that it's not to say that it came to a screeching halt, but it there was a significant cliff in 1963 when Studebaker closed, and um, instantly I want to say that the the city's payroll collectively dropped by like 40 percent or something like that. It was it was tremendous, and then the ensuing uh, 40 years, um, you know, we experienced post-traumatic decline, um, where the city had you know depopulated by 30,000. You know the the 
relatively the metro area was was somewhat stable in that time, but but uh, the city itself saw you know the uh, the divestment in, in, in some blight in the areas. Um, at the same token, you have suburban sprawl and all those those other elements going on. Uh, so you get to when you get though to, to 2012, uh, the region was hit particularly hard, uh, particularly in a, in a difficult way with with the Great Recession. The right next door is Elkhart, and South Bend and Elkhart really ought to be one MSA. And it's a conversation with the Census District as to why they're not. But nevertheless, um, uh, you know, a lot of people in South Bend commute to Elkhart and vice versa. Elkhart, being home of the RV industry, um, experiences what the Wall Street Journal described as the most volatile economy in the country in terms of the swings, positive and negative. And it had hit a, a published unemployment rate of 25%. Um, in uh, around that time, uh, and I think in practice it was much higher than that. Um, in South Bend, we were at 14% published, but uh, we had about a you know maybe 11 major vacant buildings. Um, many of them are landmarks downtown. Uh, the, the College Football Hall of Fame had just uh, moved, uh, closed shop, and moved to Atlanta to be in the heart of the SEC country. Um, and, you know, there were a number of things coming to a head and we had the, um, unfortunate distinction of, of being named within Newsweek's top 10 dying of cities in the country, wow. um, at that time. And so, um, as is the case so often in life, sometimes when you're at the bottom of a trough, you're actually, you know, you have the seed to hope and, you know, among other things that, that dying a city moniker, I think was a rallying cry, um, for people across the community to, to step in and also to think differently about what the future could be to look like. And that led to an unconventional choice in, uh, in electing the youngest mayor of a major city um, uh, in the U S when uh, Pete Buttigieg was elected in uh, 2011, you know, beginning his term in 2012 at age 29. Yeah. I, I want to talk about how you got involved with the city, how you became uh, a, 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 a city staffer, uh, because it was, it, it's an interesting um, transition, and I, I kind of felt, and I, I don't, I want you to tell the story. I don't want to impose this on you, but my recollection of the the conversation was that there's a certain um, clearing out of old ideas and and kind of making way for a, a new, you know, a, a new approach. And those things are really painful in Rust Belt cities and cities like mine where you kind of have a, you know, a, a way of doing things and an old guard. Can you talk a little bit about that transition, how you became involved in it and just some of the, maybe some of the difficulties and the positives of, of going through that? Absolutely. Well, you know, my background is in um, both in economics and in architecture and in previous stops had, um, the, the good fortune to have interned at DPZ. Um, I worked, uh, I also interned at UDA and worked at, uh, with Mo and Paul Azoides, um, before, um, moving to Chicago where I had been, um, at the time, this is at the sort of peak of the great recession. Uh, there wasn't a lot of building going on and, uh, there were some opportunities there in, um, in high end residential. They were, the, that was the one facet that was, was really building. So was working on a, a large residence on, uh, on Lake Michigan, you know, um, and spent a lot of time detailing some really specific uh, sort of jeweled rooms. And uh, it um, it was work that I appreciated deeply, but I also, my, my growing up outside of Detroit, which I sort of likened to growing up uh, next to the ghost of Christmas future, <laughs> yeah. if you're interested in cities. Um, you know, I've always been interested in sort of healing cities and, and at that interrelationship between um, the, the economic, the social and, and the formal, you know, or the, the built form of a, of a community and felt that, uh, if you just think, if you, if you separate them, that's when the problems begin. You have to think about things in 3d. Um, and, and so, um, there were, um, I had graduated Notre Dame in, in 01 and my senior thesis of all things, an undergrad was on, um, integrating, uh, uh, urban design policies and economic policies for South Bend uh, to sort of help usher in urban design. And, um, and I look back at that one and, and uh, yeah. uh, 
it was it was interesting. It was fortuitous because if you had pulled me at any given time in my undergraduate experience, I'd say, hey, this was a wonderful place. I, I learned a lot here, and I look forward to maybe coming back for a football game. But I had no no intentions on on South Bend as, as home. I uh, like so many students, you know, was drawn to the coast and and, and so on. So it um, that was uh, it was interesting. But I mentioned that just because my advisors for undergrad were some of the people tapped by Mayor Pete to uh, develop a search committee for the role uh, to, to usher in economic policy. And so there were some familiar voices there. And, and so I was introduced uh, to Pete when he was still just a candidate um, when he was passing through Chicago. And we'd have some good conversations. We'd talk about a whole number of things. And, uh, um, you know, then ultimately he, he said, uh, We'd love to have your perspective in South Bend. Um, you know, can we make this uh, a formal reality? And at that point, it was a bit of a leap of faith. Um, my fiance at the time was now my wife, you know, uh, uh, very happily. But the, we were just we were engaged, and um, you know, she was working for a you know big global company in Chicago. Um, she had no context for for either South Bend or Notre Dame, um, and so um, it was. Uh, my first experience in selling South Bend, uh, and, uh, <laughs> yeah. um, but, uh, we made the move and, and, um, you know, uh, the rest, uh, you know, then just things kicked off from there and, and incredibly exciting time. Um, you know, I was grateful the mayor gave me a lot of leeway. Um, he established some broad policy guidelines up front, but also sort of, um, kind of looked to me to help develop that vision. And um, it was so exciting because it's an opportunity, um, a rare one, to integrate all those elements, right? You know, having been on numerous urban design charrettes, you're drawing, you're creating these great places, these beautiful places, but you're wondering who are the tenants going to be? Like, how are you going to? It's great to to, to make these, um, you know, exciting formal moments in the city, but if there's no, if there, if there aren't market forces, um, you know, is this what is this for? Um, and so being able to, uh, to think, how can we deploy our business, you know, our resources for business attraction development and for, for improving, um, you know, place and urban design um, and encouraging just, you know, better policy, um, you know, so that was real exciting. Um, but, but, you know, joined the team. Um, we had just, we merged several departments, um, you know, uh, we had an, sort of the economic development side and, and the community development side. And, and that is a, a situation that um, is a plight of so many cities, right, where you're pursuing sort of business-friendly approaches on one hand, um, and you've got the, the sort of housing, uh, anti-poverty, and, you know, efforts on the other, sort of neighborhood efforts on the other other hand. And the two were operating in, in, in parallel, and they, they needed to, to be united. So we we brought everyone together, reconstituted it. We actually established a, a design studio, uh, an economic resources team, uh, a, a sort of business attraction team, a workforce development team, and a neighborhood um, neighborhoods team. So that we, um, and you know, with any particular project, wanted to make sure there are perspectives from all of those groups at the table up front. And I think that that was a new way to do things, but it, it helped to solve problems before they arose. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you weren't, you weren't going to propose a site for a manufacturer that wasn't served by transit, that didn't have a ready workforce, um, that also was going to further chip away at greenfield development versus reutilizing some of the available space we already had on hand. So, yeah. You when when I was when I was there the first time, uh, you were were generous and invited me to stay at your place, and I was I was kind of blown away by your house because it it is it, first of all it's gorgeous, um, it's one of these kind of uh, old uh, you know like the 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 pre industrial mansion almost you you I, I think you'd probably say it differently but it's a great house. Um, then you told me how much it cost and, uh, yeah. how you were able to get it really cheap because, uh, the neighborhood was in distress. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that, that neighborhood distress and what a challenge that has been and kind of how there are often like no good answers to, to those kind of problems 
especially there in South Bend? So, yeah, you know, um, you know the, uh, well, thank you for the thoughts on the house. It is, um, you know, it was a wonderful house. It certainly was um, in any other city would have been well beyond our means, but, but speaks to the, the sort of housing arbitrage that's possible in a place like South Bend where the cost of living is 40% that of Chicago, for example. Um, and uh, uh, it's also a great recruitment tool um, because you're able to, um, you know, to, to find you really great opportunities like that, that are in, within walking distance of, of lots of great amenities. Um, I, you know, in terms of, I wouldn't go so far as to neighborhood within in distress um, in the immediate proximity of the house. I think that there, there are a couple of things at play. One was um, uh, it's very interesting to be a uh, sort of secret shopper dealing with real estate agents so, you know, I'm moving to the community, you know, back from, you know, uh, having lived all over the place, but, you know, certainly no one, particularly in the real estate community would have known who I was when I, we were looking for homes. Um, and, you know, they see a young professional couple and the default is to steer them towards cul-de-sacs in the suburbs. Right. right. Um, and kind of made it clear up front, no, I will be living inside the city limits. Uh, and that's important for me. And it's also um, want to, uh, I think it's important for a lot of reasons, although the city did not stipulate that. I thought that that was kind of critical that I was a resident. Um, and, um, and also I'm not, a, not so called a sec, you know, <laughs> right. Guy. So right. we, uh, uh, <clears throat> um, so that was fascinating just to see how the real estate agents were dissuaded, um, or, you know, had concerns about it. And one actually went as far as to say, you know, look, you know, Scott, how are you going to have this conversation with your father-in-law, um, you know, when he comes to visit and he sees that, you know, a few blocks away, things are pretty rough. And, you know, that was interesting. And I, and I said, look, if I don't do this, if we don't do this, then what's the purpose of being here? Like we we're betting on, on the region, we're betting on the town, we're betting on what we think that what can happen here. And um, it just so happened. We are incredibly blessed. It actually is a, the, uh, the social capital in the neighborhood is incredible. Um, there are a lot of, of community leaders that happen to live in that neighborhood, a lot of um, young academics uh, as well. And um, it's actually the hotbed of, of incremental development now in, in the region. But um, it, more than anything else, it probably says something that when we pulled up on Sunday night at 8 o'clock at night um, in our U-Haul um, without having met anybody, the neighbors on both sides came out and said, Hey, can we help you move this stuff in? Yeah. Um, want to introduce ourselves. And, you know, that as much as anything sort of speaks to, you know, the, the, the positives, the, you mentioned challenges, um, vacant and abandoned housing was the number one issue identified in the community when Pete was on the campaign in 2011, um, mentioned before the depopulation of the city, um, and, and also just changing housing preferences, you know, the, uh, so much of the housing stock in the middle part of the city was is post-war, uh, single-story, single-family homes that uh, um, that doesn't even necessarily appeal to the new home buyers of of you know millennials and whatnot, and um, they're in this twilight zone of of being owned by often out-of-town entities um, who were irresponsible and and had no motivation to move. Um, on the property, but because it's owned by somebody, the city could not just take it over or, you know, clear it. Um, we're a nation that represents, that respects property rights. And, and so um, we had to find some innovative ways to address that and, um, and get there on the housing stock side. So that was, that was one of the early things. And so, yeah, you spoke to that in our neighborhood. We certainly had that issue. And, um, you know, the mayor gave us a, a charge. We had to dress a thousand houses in a thousand days, and you know that was um, that was notable because we had a paper-only code department at the time that um, literally filled two floors of city hall with with Florida ceiling files of of just paperwork. Um, but they um, at the time couldn't couldn't say necessarily how many houses there were or any of that that elements, and having to get from there to that forced us to have a totally data-driven, had to catalog everything, utilize a lot of creative resources, 
and come up with some new mechanisms to to expedite the process. Um, that that was one of the things that I found fascinating, and I'm going to say this word and, and feel free to push back on this, but it, it felt like the city had uh, the city government, uh, and you mentioned the the building code department had kind of uh, turned a little zombie like, you know, with just kind of going through the motions without a a, a vision or a direction. Uh, without kind of uh, any motivating things. And, and it felt like you and, and the team you were on were kind of lighting a fire under that. A- am, I, am I way off base or talk a little bit about that? So, um, I, so it's important to note that, that um, so many economic development or community development, you know, so many economic development wins are really uh, work community development, you know, prospects a decade in the making. Right. Um, and it would be, uh, it would be wrong and inappropriate to say that, you know, it was, but for this new team, all these things happened. There were some, some irons in the fire by some incredible individuals in, in the previous administration. But I think a couple of things had happened. One previous mayor, who was, was a tremendous, tremendous civic leader, but he had been in his longest, the longest serving mayor. So you have, um, I want to say well over a decade, uh, 14 years, I think, of the uh, same administration, the person who had been running the economic development group, of all things, I think for some life and health reasons, ended up was in Chicago, um, sort of commuting in, which is problematic. <laughs> um, right, right. And, and so there, there, hadn't, there hadn't really been leadership in, in community economic development at that level, you know, for several years. And um, I think that to your point that that was part of, um, you know, part of the vacuum there. And, um, and, and so there's that. And then also just the, the team that the mayor pulled together was an exciting one of folks who um, we like to say that we punched above our weight in terms of folks we were able to recruit to the team. You know, we had former private equity executives. We have, you know, um, uh, you know, leaders of, of A&E firms who are coming in and PhDs coming into our public works department. Um, and, you know, so that was, you know, that was exciting. Um, but important to note, and I think this is really important from the get go, this was not a situation where we were experimenting. Uh, this was one where we live here. Um, many people like Pete grew up here. Um, you know, there were a lesson from all of that, from urban renewal and the projects of the sixties, you don't experiment with the poor. Um, it was one where we were all in the trenches together and how do we co-innovate? How do we bring some fresh ideas and, 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 in the fortune that some of us have had global experience and, and bringing able to bring some of those solutions to South Bend, but, um, in a way that it was, um, it was do no harm as a sort of first step. Right. Let let me let me ask you about the uh, the downtown revitalization work because I, I think that's probably maybe some of the most visible and dramatic changes that have happened over the last decade. Uh, you had a nasty couplet downtown. Uh, you had some abandoned buildings and, and some places that needed some love. Can you talk a little bit about what transformations taken place and kind of what the catalyst for that has been? Absolutely. Yeah. No. It's 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 exciting. We're to north of $200 million of, of private investment. Um, the, uh, we've got, you know, several hundred new units now, um, in the development, uh, or have opened up, uh, there's a wait list now on, on single bedrooms in downtown South Bend. Um, like I said before, we had, um, uh, almost a dozen vacant buildings, um, notably the tallest building in the region, um, and, and there are great stories with each of these, but, uh, the, um, to that process, I think up front, um, importantly, and this is also, I appreciate Pete and, and others, their guidance on this had to change the culture and the perception of working with the city. Um, you know, prior to 2012, there was a sense that, that St. Joe County, um, in many ways had been redlined in the state, uh, in that, um, you know, some of the really innovative things that were happening in Indianapolis and the state of Indiana, others may not know this, is one of the most competitive in economic development and, and um, has, has done a tremendous job um, in a balanced way um, just as a leader in that field. And that, but there was a disconnect and 
that may have fallen over political lines and other things, but there was a sense that, that it was a difficult place to do business. And so changing that culture, um, a lot of intentional outreach to, to, at the time, Governor Daniels and his team in Indianapolis, but also with business leaders in the community being hyper responsive um, with them to, so that it was a good place to do business. Those were kind of early things. Um, there was a, a clear sense that we had to, um, the directive from Pete, especially that, you know, especially him coming from McKinsey, having a very kind of quantitative basis initially, I think that is, that has expanded much more to a relational understanding. But early on, you know, really quantitative, we had to show the, the economic or fiscal rationale for any project, and it had to be clear that there was a return to the community. So coming up with the math in a way that, um, you know, uh, it wasn't some Rube Goldberg, you know, algorithm or system that was hard to communicate. We had to, to dumb it down a little bit so that it was clearly, you know, accessible. But um, we we came up with a way to calculate the the return, and we 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 published that math on any project if it was good or bad um, when we brought it to the council, when we brought it to the redevelopment commission, um, and I think that was important to earn trust. Right. Um, uh, the other pieces, and then I'll get into the, some of the specifics, but the other piece was on the culture side was was bringing people like yourself and other great, um, you know, innovative speakers um, that are in this sort of broader, new urbanist, um, in this strong town network who could tell the story. So it wasn't so much us telling the story, but having other people kind of not only validate, but also bring you know, unique and fresh perspectives to it and making sure that that was heavily covered by local media and others as a very intentional drumbeat and sort of educational campaign. And, and one of the, the, those speakers and, and consultants was Lori Voke of, of Zimmerman Voke. And, you know, they, they really helped. And I'm sure many of your listeners are aware, but Zimmerman Voke, I believe, is the only firm that can able to construct a demand schedule for urban housing when there are no comps present, right? Market comps. Right. You get this chicken or the egg cycle where developers are kind of interested in these buildings downtown, but the banks say, you know, the lenders are like, well, you know, there aren't any comps. The only comps happen to be subsidized housing or something like that. And so they're they're not willing to lend. It's too risky because um, we don't know what we're yeah, getting into. Risky. Yeah, yeah. So Zimmer and Vogue comes in and they say, very confidently, there's an unmet demand for a thousand units, and and uh, and we feel that that uh, you can get to a price point of closer to dollar seventy five uh, per square foot on rent. And at the time, we were probably at a dollar twenty, um, and the fact that their past work had been validated and had been sort of bankable um, was one of those key points that, that helped both the developers and the lenders off that ledge and, and help move them forward on some of those early projects. Um, let, let me, let me pause and put an exclamation point on this because th this is happening in a city with excess housing, right? Right. Right. <laughs> so, right. so that's the, that's the hard sell here, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Yeah. 30,000 vacant units and a city that's been in 40 years of uh, persistent population decline. Um, and, and you're right, sort of counterculturally, we're, we're looking at several, um, you know, beautiful 1920s, you know, either former hotels or, or commercial buildings that um, essentially had become class C office space. And the thought was, how do we, how do we constrict the office market Converting the classy office space, which was um, again mostly historical, you know, buildings um, to residential, because we know that that has an appeal, um, and one of the indirect benefits would be that it would help prop up the the office market by you know tightening the pool, and also by adding the beds downtown, you know, the the, the apartments that would help the ground floor retail and, and, and restaurant environment. Right, and so able to move several. Um, hundred units of, of uh, along those lines through you know a couple of projects up front, and um, you know that was critical. Um, but at the same time, those developers wouldn't have done it not just for the Zimmerman vote component, but also because of what we were doing with the streets. And so you mentioned that, and um, uh, South Bend 
like so many cities, again, in the 60s and early 70s, had their downtowns were um, rendered by the you know, of these one-way couplets that my understanding, and it may be apocryphal, but I understand that there was a Cold War justification that tied to the evacuation of cities in the advent of, you know, a, a nuclear attack. And, you know, the bad joke is that these couplets have been evacuating cities ever since. Right. Um, yes. And, uh, um, but we had, you know, what was effectively five lanes in each direction, um, uh, and, uh, and much of it state-owned, which adds a level of complexity. And um, there had been, we had made a, a uh, um, I'll take a, a half step back and say, it was very important to Pete that we show results out of the gate. And so he had a heavy bias towards tactics and a healthy skepticism on planning. Um, and I say that, that uh, the prior decade, there had been lots of plans and lots of, lots of community conversation, um, but there hadn't necessarily been a lot of visible activity. And so if anything, part of it was to um, help build trust with him or get him interested more in some of the planning efforts. And he, he, he very much was sympathetic to the, the, the policy and the principles of it, but um, he wanted to make sure there was activity happening. And so we, um, we moved pretty quickly on, on the, the two-way conversion, but it, it was under contract actually even before I came on board. And it was with, I'll say, a, con a very conventional A&E firm, and they had brought really conventional um, solutions, unfortunately, with, you know, two left turn lanes. And, um, you know, it was, uh, it was road, uh, a very strode approach uh, to, to the conversion that was not particularly urbanistically friendly. So it, it did achieve the two-way conversion, but um, did not seem to, would not have yielded any, any positive benefits in terms of, of development and, and, you know, pedestrian friendliness and whatnot. And so we actually had to make a very a politically unpopular decision to, to, to pull the, pull the cord on that um, because that was a, a local firm that was very influential, but we said we had to hit pause and uh, we went out and, and um, retained Ian Lockwood, who was, I um, wanted to find someone who could both uh, had the, the engineering chops to speak with authority to the traffic engineers, but had a design hand and also could speak to, his own direct experience as a former public works director uh, to, to these conversions. And, um, and so Ian came in and he was fantastic. And, yeah. and um, I think very quickly because he did the math in tandem with the design that he was able to, to demonstrate authority on the subject very early on and gain the trust of a, a number of people in the city and in the community. Um, and, uh, and that started, and so we, we laid out this vision for $42, 43 million dollars of work, and um, which was the city's largest public works project. Um, and you know, taking again a chapter from from your book as well as that of Mike Lydon and, and the thought of tactical urbanism, we started on a piloted basis um, and picked a few streets that weren't the, the major ones yet uh, to demonstrate that we could do this. Um, and, and get a level of comfort there and kind of build up towards that major transformation. And at the end, it was over 15 miles. Um, and uh, I want to say it was 27 public meetings uh, tied to that effort directly, um, brought closer to 40 public meetings of, of the broader Complete Streets narrative. Um, and uh, a lot of innovative things there that could speak to on you know, just for the, your audience, I mean, I think that communities are facing these issues. Um, I would encourage some of the lessons learned. One is um, establish the broadest coalition possible and just think about your stakeholders. So um, one, one can, for example, you may not think of this, but and this may be counterintuitive, but we got the firefighters on board. Yeah, uh, the yeah. firefighters. Um, we, you know, and it was great and, and we have a really innovative chief. And so that helped. Um, but when we had them do time trials with ambulances, um, to the hospital on streets that were going to go to two way, and they found how much time they saved by not having to take the one way streets. Um, 
and the fact that in some of their stations that were opening onto the one-way streets, they now no longer had to take that dangerous left turn on the, you know, four lanes of oncoming, you know, opposite traffic. Um, you know, getting them on board for this was, was important. And also the firefighters union was one of the biggest supporters of various, you know, the council members camp, you know, each of their, their um, political um, budgets. Right. So getting the firefighters as an example on board was, was critical getting, you know, obviously developers and residents and, and um, restaurateurs and kind of finding, being able to speak to to each of those audiences um, in a way that, you were able to relate the, the vision to them um, was critical and, and making sure that they were there at every public meeting to help champion it and, and help build that campaign. Um, you know, that was, that was a big part of it. Um, and, and, you know, again, this is a city that in the midst of, of economic, you know, distress and, and also fiscal distress, important to show the, 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 the return on investment and the fiscal benefits. And this is, I know that, that some may, may groan or think that we're, we're, we're leaning into tabulation, you know, decision by tabulation. That, that's not the case. But I do think being able to ground these projects in fiscal merits, not just aesthetic ones, was really important to gain the, the trust of um, all of the, the, poli- the, um, the elected officials and the population. Yeah, yeah. Um- you introduced me to, and I, I had him on my podcast, and I, I've I've not been able to find that one. I think it got I think yeah. it got lost in the. Uh, it, we we switched we switched uh, providers a while back, and we lost some of our podcasts. Uh, mm-hmm. I want to say his name was Santos, but I I can't remember uh, for sure. Is yeah. that right? Santi Garces. Santi, yeah, Santi. yeah, yeah, yeah. I talk a little bit about just the role that he played and. Because oh, yeah. to me, it kind of he kind of embodied the culture that you all were creating, uh, and I I just found him to be invigorating. Oh, that's right. So 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 early days, you know, um, you know, I think we 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 understood that in some ways the city was going to have to be out front um, as the most uh, you know innovative or progressive employer. Um, and as a in, in sort of a, a leader in the in the region, not just in the you know the provision of services, but in some ways a model for um, you know as a startup. And and so that um, we were, uh, I think the the smallest city nationally to receive a Code for America grant, um, you know, at the time. So among other things, or, you know, very early on, we had a cohort of, um, of those with code skills, but also had you know, were sort of um, polymaths, you know, former Fulbrights and whatnot who had, had had received these fellowships who were embedded in the city to develop applications for city government. And so the Code for America fellows were doing things to help um, help those in the digital divide. You know, h- how do you how do you communicate um, to a significant cohort of people for whom, you know, they really rely on a landline uh, for their their external communication, you know, not an email address, not a you know, not those other channels, and so they found a an innovative way to to help embed that into the the city's ecosystem. But but around that same time, um, and this goes to your conversation or your question before, one of the holdovers from the the previous administration is a man who truly is a saint. At, at some point, I'd encourage you to have him on your show, uh, Gary Gillot. I mean, just an incredible, incredible. Uh, person whose IP is behind so many things in the region, but is one who, who never really steps up to take the credit. Um, and um, I'd embarrass him if I went into any of the stories, but but an incredible leader. He had he was one that kind of helped this insight that there was a new um, program at, at the University of Notre Dame uh, called Esteem, which um, were those. It's a, it was a basically a one year MBA with a focus on entrepreneurship for students coming with a STEM background, a science, engineering, and math background. And um, that first cohort of, of esteem students had been um, on a visit to, to Durham and they were in the American, uh, the Lucky Strike uh, factory. And they were, they had the epiphany that this felt a lot like the former Studebaker buildings at the edge of downtown South Bend and said, why can't we do this in South Bend? 
And um, they quickly, several other business leaders got involved and created a fellowship that was initially funded by these business leaders in the region to, to create a cohort of, of seven fellows who um, were to work as a team as uh, like an in-house consulting service to organizations in the region. And um, these were people who were turning down, and Santi in particular, opportunities with Google and Microsoft and Intel and Cisco um, because they were so enamored with the opportunity here in South Bend that, that Pete kind of spoke to, that others were engaged. There was a real sense of promise and a chance to really make an impact. And, and um, you know, so some of those really early projects, the city was a, a beta customer and what they were, you know, a route optimization algorithm for solid waste trucks. You know, they found a way to to minimize tipping fees and maximize the efficiencies of uh, the routing of of, of solid waste trucks. They found a way to save our fire department, I want to say $3 million in five years by demonstrating that, I want to say like 96% of the the calls serviced by a hook and ladder truck could have been handled by an SUV, Um, you know, and, and by extension could be handled by two FTE, not three FTE and so on. And you know, from that, some of that savings we allocate to helping to um, other needs within the firefighters, um, you know, the team, but also that was a savings that went back to the residents. And so, so you have this group that's really showing how we can do things differently with data and bring new solutions to some of these legacy issues. And um, Santi, we were able to recruit to stay on and, and he became first a sort of innovation officer and, you know, a one person shop. And, you know, fast forward three years later, he had a team of over 30 um, that was funded almost entirely by savings that he had generated, you know, through um, all kinds of, of clever things um, by, you know, just how we managed IT and, and also innovation across the city. So he had, he had road scholars working in his team. He had, um, you know, Deloitte fellows working in his team. Um, and, uh, you know, they were successful in, in securing a Bloomberg grant, um, among many other things. And, and, uh, so, um, you know, that's been fascinating just to see in its own right. And so that, that in many ways was really inspiring for, for the region because it also drew a cohort of, um, I'll say young, uh, really bright people from all over the country who started because of the of of the name that they're making for themselves started to work and they're working in city hall which in many ways i think had this gravitational push on the business community um that helped people um you know see it sort of that sense of momentum so um well i I, uh, i feel like that's the exciting part to me is that you you know you there's this narrative out there that you know if you're young and uh you know, up and coming and you've got, uh, a lot of opportunity, you're going to wind up in New York, San Francisco, uh, you know, Seattle, Chicago, you're going to wind up in one of the big cities. And here you all in South Bend were able to attract some great minds and, and some really top notch talent to, uh, a deindustrialized, you know, place with, you know, declining population and what have you. And, and, and that was a big catalyst of turning things around. And yes, and, and um, you know, the In Focus fellows, uh, 70% have, have stayed in the region. It's incredible, right? So right. these are folks who, you know, several of whom are, for reasons of Notre Dame, you know, have, are from Ireland, right? And, you know, one, one of whom has a PhD in astrophysics and has been doing tremendous work trying to create a rationale for a property assessments in the region, right? So, but he's moved here, right? You know, they're now residents. And so I think that that... Um, um, you know, that is, that's one of the, the success stories, uh, um, on that side, but, but it's a much broader picture than that as, as you spoke to. And, um, it's not just a creative class argument. Right, um, there's right. a broader, a broader, a broader, um, environment at play. So, you know, that, that address is actually one of the things that we were able to announce last week, two weeks ago, which is the, uh, um, through the generous donation of the, the Lilly Endowment, uh, you know, they've seeded with $42 million, a $170 million initiative for the region um, to help really connect the 
so the global resources and expertise at Notre Dame as a tier one research university with those small and medium um, scale manufacturers in the region, um, most of most of which are you know tier three suppliers, privately held, um, family owned, who are very very vulnerable in this sort of um, you know digital disruption that's coming. But it's important because the Brookings Institution just identified Elkhart uh, as the third most vulnerable region nationally to adverse disruption with automation. Um, and so, you know, it's important to think about these things across that spectrum. So it's great to have the InFocus fellows coming in and doing some innovative things, but we also very mindful of that broader, that entire entire spectrum of, you know, what are the opportunities and, and how are we going to find some ways to make sure that everyone's plugged in. The, the last thing I really wanted to get into with you was the relationship between the city and, and the university. A, a, a lot of places that I go, um, you know, the, well, let me, let me frame it like this. There, there's a, there's a, there's a train of thought and it's the, you know, Krugman, uh, you know, kind of uh, elite economist point of view that, boy, the only way these cities come back is if you put a university there. Um, that being said, I, I've been to a lot of university towns and I'll point to Akron as one uh, where, you know, you, you have an, you have a university uh, it is, you know, a, a major player, but it's kind of walled itself off from the city and there really isn't the, the interaction and the, the, the kind of back and forth uh, it, you know, co-investment that you see in, in other cities that are successful on this model. South Bend seems to me to be one of the more successful. And I was particularly impressed with how the university was housing their, uh, their visiting fellows in the core neighborhoods and uh, really, you know, trying to have this, this deeper connection. Can you talk a little bit about that relationship and why that relationship is, is important and, and maybe a little bit about what Notre Dame and South Bend have done to kind of capture that? I'm sure it's not all a rosy story, but uh, it seems like it's working for me. Well, it's um, that's great to hear. I, you know, I think that there's um, we there's a lot of room. They've made incredible progress, but there's a lot of room to, to go and to grow. Um, you know, the town gown relations that seems to be an issue that kind of pervades over time. And you do have places like in Oxford and Cambridge and you know Bologna, where the universities are literally walled off from from the surrounding communities. Um, you know, it, 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 Notre Dame, its history really, in some ways it was founded to be like, you know, a monastery in the wilderness where people came from the outside and, you know, embodied a, a certain set of values and education that went back into the world. Um, and, and so for that reason, it, it had a, a somewhat, you know, it, even though it, it, um, it grew up in tandem with South Bend, it did have this sort of green belt kind of, uh, boundary around it. And I would say that um, it really it, it began a little bit under Father Hesburgh's tenure, uh, more so under under Monk Malloy's tenure. But but really with most re with Father Jenkins, who, who came in and I believe 2004, it really has blossomed. And, and that boundary has become a, a much more of a seam between the campus and, and the community um, at that, that edge. Um, you know, part of much of that different dimensions. One one rationale, you know, you have a you know, a university transitioning from, a, you know, as a clerical university, it's the administration, you know, drawing upon the ranks of the Holy Cross priests to one that's, you know, um, you know, a number, you know, certainly majority of positions are lay, um, you know, lay, you know, administrators, right? So those are people who have families, um, who have kids that are going to be in the local schools and so on. And so, you know, you know, recruiting, um, you know, continues to be that that's one of the the most important facet is: Are there compelling, you know, opportunities for dual career families in the region? Are the school systems attractive that you're going to be able to get top talent that you know wants to raise their families in the region? So, you know, there's there's that component where there's an opening up. Um, there, um, the the neighborhood immediately south of campus um, was really checkered. Um, you know, not even a uh, 15 years ago was in was in you know, rough shape. And, uh, you know, I think broadly admitted, there were some, there, there were some challenges there. And to the credit, you know, they created a, a, an organization that had the president of the university, 
the president of two of the largest companies in the in the county, and the mayor, um, and then several neighborhood residents. And they met on a regular basis for an extended time over several years before they made any moves. And um, that was critical, and it really showed a true a sincere respect to have all those people around one table and uh, to make a plan for that neighborhood that was um, well-received in all corners. And uh, Notre Dame did take a step to, to help um, to bring some housing into that neighborhood, which had been you know, um, plagued with a lot of vacant housing. This is immediately at the university's southern entrance, main entrance. And uh, they, they were able to purchase those homes, uh, those lots. And uh, when they went to build these homes initially, no bank would finance them. Uh, to give a sense of, of the sort of neighborhood situation. And the university had to guarantee the, 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 the houses. Um, and they did so. And now some of those when they've come on the market have gone, you know, north of 700,000, certainly, um, which is many multiple times, I would say, the, the, the uh, typical house in the region. Um, but it's brought a lot of folks really close to the university, which has been great. Right, um, right. But but now now the partnership is you know universities have um, you know they oftentimes put out these economic impact reports and you know those are often as much a PR document as they are a technical document and um, you know one of the things that we highlight is there's a huge you know economic impact footprint of the university in the region but it only has just begun to really tap its potential. Um, because to date, that impact is just by virtue of the operation and events at the university. It is just now starting to get the kind of inroads that you see in, in communities like Ann Arbor or Durham or Evanston, where you, you're, you're getting the, the businesses that are being spun off from the commercialization of technology that are staying and growing um, right next to campus. And, and that's the exciting part for us. But that's one where we're just really getting started on that front. As a as a kind of closing thought, I, I'm wondering, and this is maybe unfair to to put on you, but I'm 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 wondering if you have some advice that you would share to local leaders who are are, are living in and working in communities that are struggling, places that have a, a lot of challenges, are not maybe experiencing robust growth, are not you know on on the coasts. And uh, just have a natural influx of people. Um, what what would you say are some of the the advice or the keys to success if you were going to a, a place like that that you would uh, that you would have them focus on? It's uh, a great question. It's um, try to unpack that. I mean, one one is it's uh, identify those things that you can influence and and and. Um, and, and focus on those, right? So for us, out of the gate, it was literally city government itself, where uh, that could be the innovator, that could be the model for, and, and, a, and a talent attractor, and, and all those things for the region and, and, and for the city, um, versus trying to, to, you know, hit any, um, you know, sort of attract some sort of, uh, you know, white whale into the community from a business standpoint. I think. Um, for the broad part, most communities have the same set of resources to offer when trying to incentivize businesses um, and attract companies. I think the differentiator that we saw was clarity and speed of information. Um, so I think it's the extent to which you can you can make that the the what resources, what are the processes, and and how how decisions are made really clear and accessible. Um, that helps reduce just, you know, just reducing some of those obstacles up front. Um, and then also looking at, you know, those opportunities within your own operations as a city government where you can use that. And you know, we, um, several companies that have now gone off to, to spin off that are post revenue that have had exits. Um, actually, were, um, the city has been the first, South Bend has been the first customer. And uh, those are those are companies that came up through, um, you know, uh, you know, the research at Notre Dame that then became a company and used the city as, as a first customer. And so I would encourage you know cities to think along those lines of of 
you know, where their own operations could benefit and in, in, uh, where they can be a key customer for a business that's going to locate in their town. Um, and, uh, and I also, I think the other piece is that um, uh, one is that, um, that the keep the end, the, the couple of things. One is the other thing is maintain a sense of empathy of how does the average resident experience this, whatever it may be. Um, and keep in mind, what's the psychology of, of any of those residents? And, you know, oftentimes in, in City Hall, you're in this bubble. And, and, and you know, the, um, some of the events or some of the potential drama or the daily, you know, uh, or the personalities and so on, that can, that can be somewhat consuming. And, and you need to keep in mind that, you know, sometimes the reality is in a city like South Bend, 100,000 people um, argue a sizable percentage of them probably couldn't name all of the city council members and or, you know, key members of the mayor's team, right? You know, like their daily life, what's important to them, what, you know, what's influencing them. And so, you know, that's, if the trash is being picked up on time, that's if, you know, the, right. you know, is responsive, that is, you know, those things. So really looking at it through the end user's standpoint and, and, and looking at that as opportunities for innovation is, is important. It also grounds, grounds you in terms of when you're looking at some of these um, innovative technologies to make sure how, you know, what does this do for the average resident in the community? And the last piece is um, uh, we, we came up with this diagram. If I were to visualize it, think about a street section. And for those of you not familiar, think about, you know, slicing through a stick of butter. And it's the image of, of that face. Like you're, you're slicing through the street and the buildings on either side, that street section. And you think about, we came up with a zone, we came up with about five zones across that. You had inside the walls of the building, you had the sort of facade, you had the streetscape, uh, maybe the tree lawn, you have, uh, you know, the, the bike lane, the, the, you know, the curbs and you, or the, the travel lanes. And then think about what's the right resource for each of those zones. But at any, at any instance, always be thinking about how you marry market forces with infrastructure and design improvements. Um, and, and don't pursue either without the other. Right, right. Scott, um, I have two daughters and two uh, kids seem like the right amount to me because uh, – the people I know who have three, the kids outnumber the parents and, and a certain level of insanity breaks out. You've uh, recently, you and your wife have your third kid. Congratulations. Is, uh, is it insanity yet or, or are you uh, keeping things under control? Oh, I, I think it's, uh, it, it's, uh, you learn, uh, you learn to sort of, uh, receptivity is as important as intentionality. You kind of just, you have to, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, as a third child, you know, I, I, uh, Oh, you were, you, know, you were a third. I was a third child. So, you know, I, I couldn't, I couldn't, uh, draw the line there, but you know, it's, it's, um, it's absolutely wonderful. I wouldn't want it any other way. Yeah. Um, you know, just this morning, seeing my five and a half year old daughter rocking and, and, um, basically just playing with our new, our seven week old, what, what is that presence of Pierce has brought out in Clara is, is extraordinary. Um, but, you know, on a serious note, we as a culture still haven't figured out the playbook for two parents who have kind of particularly demanding jobs um, yeah. and, and how to navigate that. And, and so that's, we're still trying to figure that out, but, um, but um, wouldn't I, want it any other way. I hear you. Well, congratulations. And thanks for, thank you for taking the time. I, I've, I've wanted to do this for quite a while and I appreciate, uh, appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to fill us in. Thanks, Scott. Chuck, it's truly an honor. No, thank you. Let's, uh, let's talk again soon. You take care. <laughs> Bye. And thanks everybody for listening. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. 
just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made this city? The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah.